1: No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Million of Screens is brought to you by The Daily Show. Comedy Central proudly presents The Daily Show with Trevor Noah for your consideration. Nominated for six Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series, Outstanding Writing for a Variety Series, Outstanding Directing for a Variety Series, Outstanding Picture Editing for a Variety Series, and Outstanding Sound Mixing for a Variety Series or Special. So if you're an Emmy voter, this ad is targeted directly to you. And for continued election coverage, watch new episodes of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, weeknights at 11, 10 central on Comedy Central.
2: This is the millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up, I'm busy. Boy, what a great show.
1: Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom. By TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputator Ben Travers. On today's show, we'll be chatting about the latest reunion in the era of coronavirus. Yet another Tiger King show. And it's all leading up to our interview with not one, not two, but three guests. Damon Lindelof, Michael Schur, and Cord Jefferson. All right, skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Guys... You can add The West Wing to the list of TV reunions in the age of COVID nineteen, uh, but this time apparently they're coming together for Michelle Obama for a voter a voter initiative called uh, When We All Vote, uh, and I guess the episode will be will be airing on HBO Max. Uh,
3: given the circumstances we're in and how desperate everybody are for new programming and event programming and uh, reasons for people to subscribe to streaming services, combined with you know. The the difficulty we're facing in, in producing new things, as well as tying it into a good cause, uh, this just makes perfect sense. Uh, the West Wing cast has always been pretty eager to get back together. They poke fun at each other on social media all the time. They do plenty of like um, you know little mini reunions at panels or, or you know events around town. They actually appeared together on stage for a, a like an hour long Q and A at ATX Festival, which was a huge hit a few years back um so them doing this for you know um, uh, get out the vote reasoning makes perfect sense uh, it'll be interesting to see exactly how you know like tommy Schlamy comes in to direct uh, the the special like i don't know exactly if this is something that seems best suited for a walk and talk style presentation <laughs> uh, given restrictions and safety procedures but um he's a friggin pro and having him on board to to wrangle this great cast will be a lot of fun to watch i i i think this seems like a relatively innocent bit of entertainment it doesn't sound like they're trying to do too much or too little just provide a little bit of a reminder and do their part to to get the boat out so uh so yeah i'll, I'll check it out should be should be fun it's no friends reunion but hbo max needs something
1: my segue was going to be uh you know it's very important for people to get out and vote. And Libby, you actually spoke to Hillary Clinton this past week, and uh, I did. And you asked her if she enjoyed uh, Kate McKinnon's impression of her. And Kate McKinnon is going to be in a Tiger King show that has been greenlit by NBC Universal to air on Peacock, yes. NBC, and USA. All of possible. them. Simultaneously? There's a shorter segue. That was was a lot of steps. There was news when Tiger King first hit. Uh, There are competing Tiger King uh, shows that were going to come out of it. Nicolas Cage is attached to...
4: That's the 2020 we deserve.
1: (laughs) Nicolas Cage is attached to play uh, Joe Exotic in a Netflix show that they're developing. And and this series is led by Kate McKinnon, where she would portray Carol Baskin. And it, it has been greenlit by NBC, as I mentioned earlier, and will air, presumably, across all their platforms. Uh, it does say NBC Peacock and USA Network. I don't know in what order or how. Ben, you were you were like likening it to just a 22-minute impersonation, as opposed to something that might stretch the acting
3: limbs a little bit more. I would say that's my worry about it. I mean, my chief worry about it is that we're doing a Tiger King series. Anything? Again, yeah, like I... I... After witnessing that insane story and the fervor surrounding it once already seems like more than enough. but no, like when it when it comes to kind of trying to get excited for what will definitely be billed as a as a as a big TV event, uh especially if it's airing across all three of those very different uh platforms, broadcast, cable, and streaming. um it, to me it it comes back to mckinnon she's a she's a multiple Emmy nominee and winner. She's somebody who you know is very exciting to see stretch her range on SNL. Um, but I would I would much prefer to see her kind of be put into something that would force her to commit to a, a certain tone instead of just opening the door for more impersonations. Like I, I don't need to see a series length Tiger King sketch. And again, I don't know what they're going to do with this. I don't know how they're going to present it. And I don't know what the direction will be, but even bringing in an SNL cast member, for a Tiger King show seems like they're going to run that risk. Like that's going to be hard to dodge that perception or interpretation of it. So um, I am still struggling, I guess, to, to get excited about this. No matter no matter what angle I take.
4: That's fair. I mean, I, I like Kate McKinnon. I'd like Kate McKinnon to start transitioning to maybe something else and 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 figure out what that's gonna be um this is totally out of line and and i'm gonna absolutely regret saying it but like i think there is room for a a kind of like serious look at tiger king like the like american crime story originally was taking something that had ended up um this american punchline but had a root of tragedy at the center of it um I think there is room for that here, and I, I guess Ryan Murphy jumps to mind because he, in those serious settings, can has the ability to walk that line between kind of campy and um, exploitative. But yeah, that's that is, if we had to have another Tiger King project, which I don't think we do, um, that is what I would be more interested in seeing. Um, now, there's nothing to say that neither of these projects are. Those things other than, you know, casting. But um, we'll see. I I like that Kate McKinnon is getting work, I guess.
1: Yeah, maybe this, maybe this is the curveball. Maybe she is going to do something that is completely different than what most people would expect. Mostly, I'm just sad that we can't smash the Nicolas Cage version and the Kate McKinnon because having them play opposite each other could be some gonzo shit.
4: Yeah, I think that's the way you have to do. It. You either have to treat the subject like seriously, or you just have to go full Hunter S. Thompson with it.
1: Yeah, like just... you, ha- you have to break the dial. Like on, on yeah. the way, on the way, on the way to eleven, like you have to break it, and like you're you're at mm-hmm. you're in the 30s somewhere, and it's just mm-hmm. n- noise. Well, guys, coming up after the break, we have our truncated interview with Damon Lindelof, Michael Schur, and Cord Jefferson, we'll explain the connection as to why we're speaking to all three of them. (music) This week's episode of Millions of Screens is brought to you by RuPaul's Drag Race. VH1 proudly presents RuPaul's Drag Race for your Emmy consideration. Congratulations on its 13 Emmy nominations for season 12, including Outstanding Comedy Program and Outstanding Hosts, for a reality competition program. RuPaul's Drag Race has proven time and time again that it is the cultural phenomenon we all need. Featuring the most sensational drag queens across the nation, Drag Race puts their charisma, uniqueness, and talent to the ultimate test as they go queen to queen to see who will reign supreme. Watch highlights and episodes right now on VH1.com, RuPaul's Drag Race, for your Emmy consideration to begin in earnest, uh, I'd like to welcome you all to what I'm, I've been dubbing this entire week, the Cord Jefferson coaching tree. And I mean that with the <laughs> utmost respect uh, and not really. to denigrate.
3: Well, honestly, just for our, our listeners' benefit, obviously you've, you've explained this to me a few times, but um, how does everybody know each other? Uh, if We want to start with Mike, because I believe, Mike, you reached out to Damon and that's how that friendship began and that helped influence the good place a little bit. But Uh, We don't know, just start there so our listeners can kind of catch up and know why we're having all of you on together.
5: Sure. Yeah, I'll connect all the dots. Um, So when I had the original idea for The Good Place, um, I realized that it was in a sort of space, creative space that I had no understanding of or knowledge about. And so I was just a fan of Damon's. Um, I was a huge Lost fan and uh, a huge season one Leftovers fan and, uh, I realized that he was sort of the guy I needed to talk to, um, to, to run this idea by, because I, I, I liked the idea, but I, I, I re- like, I felt a little like a Rube, um, trying to work out a show that dealt with some, what I would consider to be sort of like science fiction elements. So through my agent, I reached out to him, uh, and said like, can you, can I just take you to lunch? And, um. I told him that we were going to play a game uh, called Is This Anything, where I, I give him an idea for a TV show and he tells me whether it's anything. So uh, we went out to lunch at a diner in Studio City and uh, I, I basically pitched him. Um, at that time, I pitched him just like the basic sort of setup for the premise and, and walked through the themes and ideas of the show. And I was sort of like, So is this anything? And he very quickly was like, Yes, this is something this is cool, but here are some pitfalls. Um, here are some potential pitfalls that you may run into. Like, here are some things you need that you'll, here are the problems you'll have. Uh, and walk me through a bunch of them. Uh, and it was incredibly helpful. And, you know, the show, the the reason that Damon was the right guy for me at the time was because like the show, I wanted the show to have like cliffhangers at the, every episode, at the end of every episode. I wanted to be heavily serialized. The show already at that point owed a kind of psychic debt, I think, to Lost. And so... Having him kind of weigh in and explain to me like what he thought of what his gut reactions were was incredibly valuable and then he continued to be a sort of trusted source, um, especially when I conceived of the I can't remember Damon at at that first meeting did I tell you the big twist at the end of the first season or not it was either that time or the second time we went out but I don't remember.
0: You, you definitely did. And, okay. um, and, and my memory, which is, which is entirely subjective is the first time that you reached out, we went to jinkies in studio city and it was right around mm-hmm. the time of the parks finale. And, um, and either the, either you were shooting the parks finale and, and it had not aired or it had just aired, but in my, but in my memory, I hadn't seen it yet. And it was just like, Hey, like I'm a huge fan of yours and let's get together. This is me saying to you, I'm a huge fan of yours. And in my memory, we talked about parks almost the entire time at Jinkies. And then it was this, this, this lunch that you're talking about was yeah. almost an entire year later because I already knew you at that point. That's right. And, hey, you're totally then, right. Yes. And yes, you absolutely 1000%. You had, the, you had laid out the points system, uh, the, um, the Doug Forset. Uh, and you pitched me the twist which is that um, uh, we're, we can spoil it now right i mean we're like well past the <laughs> yeah. you know this is I think, I think we're shows, fine, yeah. the, the show's over but the idea that they were not in a good place at all um, and that and that that was going to be the the season finale of the of the first season right so that's when i pitched the whole the whole season he gave me all this great advice
5: um, the show got up and running and then before the second season we were hiring writers. I met Cord, and um, I can't remember. Oh, it was because you had worked on Master of None. That's why I knew you from Aziz and and from Alan Yang. We're like, this guy's great. So I met Cord. I met Cord, um, we were meeting with a small group of writers, like the high level writers, in a in a sort of early prep season two thing in my office at Universal. And so I met Cord before we started that day, and we had a really great conversation in like 17 seconds, and I knew I wanted to uh, hire him or at least make him an offer. And as Cord was leaving uh, the other writers were in the sort of outdoor or the foyer area. And uh, I was like, Hey, this is Cord Jefferson. This is Jen Statsky. This is uh, you know, whoever. And uh, everyone says hi. And then they come in and then Jen, as a joke, was like, uh, is that a writer? And the reason that was a joke to her was because Cord is so handsome that nobody <laughs> believes that he could be a writer. Everyone assumes he's an actor. And I was like, yeah, he is. And she was like, shut up. And I was like, no, that guy's a, he's a writer. I don't know what to tell you. Like, and the- they, they, no, they didn't believe me for like a solid couple minutes. And then eventually I said, no, he, I convinced them. So Cord came on season two uh, and then was there for the, for the two, three, and four. Um, and then just to complete this cycle, or the circuit rather, uh, we went to a, we, a group of people got together sometime after season two to discuss various aspects of um, activism that we could engage in. Um, uh, and... I asked Cord to come with me, and Cord met Damon, and the two of them like locked eyes and fell deeply in love and then spent pretty much the entire evening
2: talking to each other i i the, what the the way that I remember is i that that dinner party meeting was uh like a week or two after the finale of leftovers had aired, and I was like so obsessed with leftovers, particularly the finale, that like as soon as Damon as soon as I saw Damon, I sort of sidled up next to him, was like, "Oh, I'm just effusively praising him and like going on and on about how much I love leftovers." And then I don't know if you, I don't know if you were already thinking about Watchmen at the time, but then you emailed me about a month after that dinner and asked if I would have dinner with you to talk about this thing that you were working on that ended up being Watchmen. Uh,
0: again, remember a little bit differently in terms of that I was I was obsessed with Master of None and Cord wrote an episode called New York, I Love You, which. Um, that was the same season as the Thanksgiving episode that Lena won the Emmy for. Um, and those two episodes of Master of None in an extraordinary season of Master of None, I was just completely geeking out over that. So as opposed to us locking eyes, it was more like I was just staring at Cord constantly and he felt the discomfort of that stare and would occasionally look up and meet my eyes. And maybe Mike witnessed one of those moments. But like, and then I think Watchmen at that point was something that was super top secret and that I had not emotionally committed to yet um, as something that I wanted to do. But Jeff Jensen and I, we had had a couple of preliminary conversations about about whether it should be done, and then some of these other ideas that were starting to filter in, p- particularly in the ones that were sort of inspired by uh, by Ta-Nehisi Coates's writing and and the idea of 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 uh, of a of will. Reeves as a black man who was hiding his identity um, as Hooded Justice. Those were very nascent ideas, I think, at the time that I met Cord. And then a month later, they I I I feel like I was like I think I want to try this, but I'm not sure. When Cord and I went out for dinner at the Chateau Marmont, <laughs> which uh, I just was trying to impress him, I feel I always feel very uncool there because people are. That's like the one place in L.A. like they people just smoke cigarettes and nobody tells them not to because they're so they're so cool and handsome and mm. and beautiful. And that's when I was like, "What do you know about Watchmen?" Um, uh, but I'm not like, was I? Was I like we're doing this thing, or was I like I'm 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 thinking of trying it on? I can't remember.
2: The way that I remember it is, you were saying you were doing this thing. It was, okay. was that the, the, that you had sort of you had already come up with some of the. You know, you told me that you wanted it to be heavily about race. You told me you told me that you wanted Tulsa to be involved. You told me that somehow police were going to be involved. Um, so it was sort of it was a it was a nascent idea, but it, but it was. It, you spoke about it as if it was going to happen. Let
5: me just and say think, that regardless of the details and the timing, the I'll tell you the feeling I had when we were at that dinner and I saw you t- you talking, which was my husband is leaving me. That's how I, that's, that, that was the, I was like, Oh, I've, I, my husband is leaving me for another man. That's how I felt <laughs> and feelings are truth. And you can't say that my feelings
0: are wrong. We We can't and we won't. And I think, I think that I I definitely feel like when Cord and I went out for dinner, that he was still writing the penultimate season of The Good Place. So, like, I, I guess in the construct of this metaphor, I wasn't cheating on on anyone. But Cord was. I
2: would like His. to think that I would like to think that <laughs> right. we formed a throuple. We formed a polyamorous oh. relationship now where we all we all love each other. I think that we can be a little bit more progressive than, than you guys are. We can. I, be. I, I definitely We're,
5: remember that. I definitely remember having conversations with Cord at various times where I, where I would be like, "How's Damon?" <laughs> like, does he ever like talk a, about me yeah like a little bit like damon used to be my friend and now he's your friend and you used to work with me and now you work with damon and that's fine i'm fine with it. it's fine I, I don't care
0: you may be joking but i can literally remember at least a dozen instances where i would turn to cord in the watchman writers room and be like what, what is the good place writer's room like this? Like, to, do you get into hostile arguments and do people leave the room crying? That happens on the good place, right? That, that happens there. And he was always very reassuring when he said, no, absolutely not. We, we, we prime, Joe Mandy primarily makes amazing lists that we all laugh hilariously at. And, and, and uh, it's the opposite of what it feels like to be here. So just know that you came out on the right side of that comparison.
5: I'd also like to say that I think this would be a great and successful podcast if, um, one question was posed and the three of us just talked until the time ran out. Why don't we just go for that? Like, maybe we can just, maybe we can filibuster. Oh my God. Off the- the pitch.
4: That was absolutely the pitch. Earlier this week, we talked to Mahershala Ali and Sterling K. Brown, and we tried as hard as we could to not say anything because they had such interesting things to say. Now you guys have less interesting things to say, but still way more interesting than what you would have to say. So please feel free. That's, that's absolutely our goal.
1: Uh, well, Libby, do you want to pose the question that we thought we were going to pose based on where they were heading in that conversation? Uh, I
4: couldn't possibly remember what that is at this point. Leo. So if you want to go ahead and ask it. I
1: mean, I, I'll ask I'll ask the rude version of it. But cord, who's the better boss? There oh, wow. Nailed let's
2: get
0: Who's right the
3: to it. better is. boss. You really want to <laughs> dig in immediately. Let's, let's do an, an exit, an exit so interview. You don't let us ask questions anymore. By
0: the way, it would be just so great right now if Cord just said, I got to be honest, it's Mike. Like, <laughs> it, like instead, Cord's going to hedge and say they're both great in different ways and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But, like, if you really, <laughs> like, just straight up just, say, just answer.
5: Just answer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Knee jerk.
2: Don't think, tr- think about it. Don't think about it. 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 First thing comes to your head. It's, I. I know that it's going to seem like I'm playing politics and being very democratic here, but um, it is Mike. No, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I. I. But I, I. really do think that. I mean, they're such different. they such different guys. I think that. Um. I think that something that I share with. I. I share a lot in common with. With Damon is is that. I hope that you don't think I'm speaking out of turn here by saying this Damon. but I'm, I'm a very neurotic person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I have a lot of anxiety and I think that I'm very open about that anxiety. And Damon is very much that way. Um, Damon, you know, Damon, it, there would be days when when Damon would say in the writers' room, "You know what? I, I think we've I think we've made a mistake in, in attempting this. Maybe it was a mistake to do this show, which which is like you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's great it for morale.
0: It's really <laughs> it's, it's really it really great for morale.
2: <laughs> it could be pretty rough sometimes. But like maybe you know, there were there were days that were that were were really hard days in that room where we sort of like talked in circles and, and sort of discussed things uh, to no end and, and felt like very, very difficult. And I think those were the days that Damien would say, you know, this wasn't a good day. Maybe, maybe this was a bad idea, but, but it's too late. We're we're on the path. And so you leave there a little dejected. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, like I appreciated that because I'm a man with, a, with a bunch of my own neuroses. And so uh, I appreciated though, that it, it never felt like you were dispassionate. It felt like that you felt that way because you loved what we were doing and you loved Watchmen so much, and you really wanted to make the work as as good as it could possibly be. And I think that that is, you know, I have imposter syndrome, and you and I have discussed imposter syndrome at length together, Damon. And I know that you have imposter syndrome also. And I think that imposter syndrome for a lot of people talk about it all the time. But I think that in my mind, imposter syndrome means that you love something and and you want it to be really good, and that you want to work as hard as possible to make it good. And so I appreciate that about you. Mike, on the other hand, is. Um, a thing that I really love about Mike as a boss is that you are the opposite Mike in that I've never truly in my life met somebody who's more even keel. I have never come across somebody who is calmer under pressure, uh, who just, who, who is sort of exudes, uh, exudes ease and exudes um, just the feeling that everything is going to be all right, truly. And so, you know, Making TV is can be a very difficult undertaking and there's a lot of money involved and a lot of people's jobs are involved and livelihoods. And so you want to get it right because you don't want to feel like people are wasting their time working with you or 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 you don't want people to lose their jobs because you aren't doing your job well enough. And so I think that that, I'm a kind of person who I, I sort of feel that anxiety deeply. And Mike, if you feel that you you never ever let on that you're feeling that. And I think that the, uh, the confidence that you exude, I think, just bleeds into the room and, and, and makes everybody feel that way, also. So uh, I would say, I, truly, I, I loved working for both of them and I would do it in a heartbeat if they ever asked again.
5: That's a very kind and, uh, and lovely answer. Um, I will only add, first of all, thank you for saying those things. Uh, I do feel those things. It's impossible not to, because, like you said, there's so much money and, and people's jobs at stake and everything else. Um, but uh, like, I'm, like a, I'm like a classic middle child. Who, who like is a peacemaker, and so my, I, I sort of grew up in this world of like, just like smooth everything over. Like that was always my sort of personal goal was just, just like keep 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 the temperature down, keep people, uh, uh, keep the boat floating. Um, so the, I do feel those things. I just I, I I kind of like they're for me to feel. I try to protect the people um, on, on the show that I'm working on from feeling them too, cause they're unpleasant feelings. And I feel like it's, that's part of the job at some level uh, or you go Damon's route and just talk about how it was a mistake to even attempt this. I think that's another way to go. <laughs> I will say this though um, that uh, <clears throat> sometime late in the process of making Watchmen, knowing that that Damon knowing how much Damon had invested in it um, I texted him and just said, Hey man, how are you doing? Uh, everything okay? How's it going? And he was uh, like, I don't know. This is, a, I think, he he said something like, "When this show works, I think it really works," and and then other times I think it definitely doesn't work. And I said, um, "I promise you, it's great. It's going to be amazing, um, and uh, and uh, it's gonna people are gonna love it." And he wrote back like, "I will bet." You anything that that's not true? I'll be, and I said, "Great! Like, like, what do you want to bet? This is the easiest money I'll ever make? Like, what do what do you want? What do you want to bet?" And he said, "We'll find an impartial observer and an impartial judge when the show is out, and we'll ask that impartial judge uh, whether that impartial judge thinks the show works." Um, and I said, "Great!" And then after the Emmy nominations came out, and it got twenty six nominations. I screenshotted that text exchange, I sent it back to him, and I said the impartial observer was the television academy the the judgment is in the show works. You owe me whatever it is that we bet. I don't do we even actually we never actually bet anything right I think i i I, lo- I should have said like a million dollars like i should I could have I taken was- you for everything.
0: I think the stakes were like a future shaming on a podcast, which I think is <laughs> you are you are now collecting. So uh, that's uh, not good enough. I would have yeah, done that anyway. Um, but uh, a million dollars seems reasonable. <laughs> it was very. It was extremely gratifying
5: to me to have the confidence that Watchmen was going to work. a thing I wasn't involved in at all, except that my uh, ex-husband went to work for it after he left <laughs> me. Um, and it was extremely gratifying to me to have the confidence that it was going to be as good as it was. And then to have that sort of in, in, in whatever way you can prove these things, like it has been proven. And, uh, and so I enjoyed rubbing it in your face a little. That's what I'm saying.
0: One of the questions that I had, um, and and not to um n- not to wrest control of of uh of, of the conversation f- from you guys, but i cord now has run his own show um we we now like uh, he he it's it's not finished but he is he has had the experience of at least running a writer's room
2: its it was interesting i i mean it was more work than I've ever done before. It was, I, I, sort of, I knew that it was going to be a lot of work. I didn't realize how much work it was going to be though. I would say that the, I would say that, uh, I probably, so I was actually just talking about this with a friend, uh, uh the other day, I would probably say that I'm more Mike than Damon in the room as far as, as far as presence goes and sort of like the, the calm thing goes because, but, but you know, uh, I, I, I sort of, as soon as I close the Zoom, I start to freak out and panic and like there's sweat stains on my shirts after I, after I get out of there because I'm so nervous about this. This is actually, I so I went, before I started running the room, I went to both Mike and Damon and like asked them questions about how to show run. And um, <laughs> Mike's, I was so nervous even talking about the concept of show running a room that I was like in a flop sweat by the time, like not even a joke, Mike had to ask me, are you okay, in the middle of our conversation because I was, cu- I was drenched in sweat, like so panicked, just even talking about it. I, I remember being so humiliated. Like we gave a hug on the way out. This was pre-COVID. And I remember hugging you and just like being like, "Oh, it feels like I'm in Miami in the dead of in the dead of summer. This is awful." But um, but when I was in the room, I tried to I tried to at least exude calm. But I think that I was thinking I was thinking the other day that that the thing that I've taken from Damon is before I started working for you. I think that storytelling to me was this very, I wanted to be, I wanted all of my scripts and, and the things that I wrote to feel like this crystalline structure where all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted and everything made sense. And you, and you sort of, everything that happened here, like was paid off here eventually. And the audience would leave with no questions. And that that people would say like, that was, uh, it was like a perfect Jenga tower with, with no missing pieces. And I think that the thing that I took from you, is just instinct. I think that something that was amazing to watch uh, when you were doing your job in the room was was just how how motivated and guided by instinct you were. I, I think that a, a, a story that a story that I love about you that, that I go back to all the time is is uh, you know I was a Leftovers obsessive as I said and and um, hearing how there, there's that scene in The Leftovers if if anybody knows it where uh, Carrie Coon's asked the prostitute she, she puts on the she puts on the bulletproof vest and asked the prostitute to shoot to shoot her um and I remember you saying Damon that Tom Parada was like okay that's an interesting pitch but why why is she doing that and and forgive me if I if I'm if mistelling this but I remember you saying Damon that you were but you said I, I don't know why it just feels like she should and I think it's cool and Tom was like okay but but why? Like I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to concede this, and it'll give me the episode, but tell me why. And you couldn't, you couldn't specify exactly why you just thought it was cool. And I think that I' when I was in, in, in my room, I started following that instinct much more than I was than I, than I would. The idea that like this is cool or interesting or surprising, despite the fact that i can't sort of necessarily tell you intellectually why this person is making this decision or why this thing is happening i just think it's cool and interesting and surprising and mysterious and i think it's going to add to add to what we're doing and i think that i left that room being much more confident in my in my instinct and just following that feeling and following following my heart and my stomach sometimes over my over my brain and so i think that I hope that I took the best of both worlds because I really do feel like I learned so much from both of you and hopefully I was able to incorporate it um, in that room. I, I hope that the, everybody that, that I worked with would, would say the same.
4: Cord, can you tell us what show that was that you show ran? Cause yeah, you know, yeah. It's it was, it's a,
2: yeah. Yeah. It's a show. It's a show called uh, scraper. Um, that, that is um, before. So my last journalism job before I started working in television is I worked at Gawker um, from twenty twelve to twenty fourteen, and so it is based loosely in a a, a tabloid news website, uh, based loosely on Gawker, set in the set in the year twenty ten, and it's just about um, about the people's lives who work at this at this tabloid news website.
4: I, I love it. Uh, I, I just gave it a positive <laughs> review. Like I am all <laughs> in. Um, <yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> but let me pivot to Mike. Um, congratulations on that on that final season of Good Place. It was glorious. Specifically, the finale. You grappled with so many big topics there, including the idea of someone uh, in the afterlife choosing to move on beyond that. Um, how did those conversations about these concepts uh, happen in the writer's room, um, given that in a very real way these were, were people choosing to end their experiences on Earth, their or experiences in the universe, their, their lives? if you will their afterlives if mm-hmm. you will what did what did framing that look like it's just
5: kind of a it's a complicated answer um, the, the first thing i would say is that the show uh was always about death even though we never dealt with death because the it starts with everybody dead and so death right. um, the end of your journey was a sort of underlying like it was hovering there the whole time the show was on and we just never had to actually talk about it because we were showing what happens after it happens. Um, But it just felt like natural. I mean, endings of things are, um, of shows, of journeys are, like death is one possible way to go, right? Like it's, that's the ultimate ending. And so pretty early on, like I think at the beginning of season three, even maybe Cord can correct me on this, but we started talking about what the ending of the show looked like. We knew, I knew it, I didn't want it to go past about four seasons, about 50-ish episodes. Um, the studio network didn't know that at that time. Um, but you, that, I
2: remember you saying that as early as I, when I first started working on the show in season two, you said you think it's going to be a four, four season yeah. show.
5: It just, if, if you just, if we laid out the sort of like signposts of what I thought was going to happen it, that's what it ended up seeming like was going to be the case. So when we really started talking about it in earnest, like it was like, well, a lot of, um, a lot of conceptions of the afterlife and a lot of discussion about immortality uh, comes back to the same idea, which is like it doesn't matter how you design it, it sucks. Like immortality sucks, and the, uh, you, you, if you live forever, a couple things happen. Um, and philosophers have explicitly written about this. Like you, you get really bored, um, and 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 everything loses its meaning, and also any sense of morality disappears because. And Chidi says this at one point um, in season uh, two, I guess he says like, look, if if you if you're gonna live forever, like who cares what you do? Who cares whether you're a moral agent? Uh, because, you know, you commit a, you commit some kind of crime or moral uh, failure, wait a billion years, like the guilt will fade. Like there's, things lose their meaning when time is infinite. And so it just seemed like the natural thing for a show that's explicitly about ethics and, and morality to say like, well, the only way this can end is for for their lives and their existences to end because otherwise nothing they did really meant anything. And so that like it, we were, we knew that was going to be the ending pretty early. Um, we didn't know the details or exactly how we were going to get there, but uh, I we knew and we started talking about immortality um, as early as season two to like lay the groundwork for the fact that by the end of the season, uh, by the end of the series rather, they were all going to make this choice. Um, and we, you know, we did some reading about, um, you know, about end of life decisions, and we did some reading at the. Todd May, he was one of the professors who helped us out, wrote a whole book called Death that was about this exact subject. That's how we found him as he wrote this book that was about, um, about why, why the fact that life is finite is crucial for, for moral behavior and for morality, meaning anything. So it, it wasn't one conversation or it wasn't even a, a series of conversations in the final season. It was sort of baked into the whole show from, from the time Cord joined. like it was, it was something that was beginning to percolate and that began to feel like the right way to sort of say goodbye and so it had this nice um kind of side effect which was like for a show that was it's sort of implicitly about death the whole time it became explicitly about death um at the very end and that that was a real punch like it it felt like it it felt like it had some impact because we were suddenly talking about instead of like things continuing on forever or resetting constantly or whatever. Um, So I don't know if I, I don't know if that answered the question, but um, that, that was really a, um, it was very organic. It, It came about very naturally from the stuff we were investigating. And, you know, we did an episode in season two about the fact that like, it was impossible to teach Ted Danson's character, anything about human morality, because he was an infinite being and he had no concept of why things mattered one way or the other. So they had to sort of create an existential crisis for him so that he considered the absence of his existence in the universe for the first time and like from I know for a fact that from that point <clears throat> excuse me from that point on, the idea that each of them would be able to sort of leave and choose their own ending um, was sort of like where we were headed, and we just sort of kept slowly creeping up to that point um, until the very end
0: as the as the writer on the on the on the call that had no um, understanding of how they arrived at these decisions. And although Mike would check in on occasion over the course of the first couple seasons, I made it be, be very clear to him and for Cord as well, once he started working on Watchmen, that I did not want to be spoiled under any circumstances. Um, and I just wanted to watch The Good Place like everybody else did. So I think that I was able to watch the final couple seasons in in a way that I wasn't able to watch the first couple of seasons which is I literally didn't know anything about what was about to happen. And I and I'll just say that to me one of the most incredibly impressive things about the way that the show wrapped up and endings are in, incredibly difficult um, is first off the show was very funny. Um, And I think that to keep the show funny in the midst of all the things that Mike just, you could literally be listening to this podcast having never seen The Good Place and be like, Mike was just talking about a drama. And I think that in many ways, uh, The Good Place was that too. But the most impressive thing to me about those the the way the end game as it were was how they issue how they dealt with the issue of scale and that is to say that traditionally if you're doing like Harry Potter or the Avengers you understand that if Harry Potter doesn't defeat Voldemort it's the fate of the world uh, that is at stake and it, and if if the Avengers don't defeat Thanos it's the fate of the world they have to they're trying to get half of the world to come back to life et cetera et cetera the good place when you actually tell people what the end game was, which is that these individuals, these six individuals basically fixed the afterlife. The afterlife was broken. And, and were, were it not for the intervention of these individuals, the, the afterlife would have remained perennially broke, uh, 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 ultimately broken. They came in, they diagnosed the problem, and then they fixed it. And then, and th- but then once that was done, what we really cared about was them. And so the show scaled all the way back down and became super intimate for its, for its, its, its final episode. And, and, and you realize I wanted them to fix it. That mattered, but I cared much more about these sort of quiet moments out in the trees. And it was really beautiful. And even just talking about it, I'm, I'm just remembering the sensation of, of watching the show ending. And I've always long believed that, and I think Mike and I may have spoken about this, as parks was was ending when we first met at jinkies which is that you want to you want to stick the landing but most of all you want to create an emotional experience for the audience that is that is like parallel to their experience of letting go of the show you know this idea of like i we've formed a relationship with the good place and the characters that inhabit it and so we're not going to see them again and so if you're feeling the same thing watching the story unfold as you are having the experience of this is this is the end this is the bon voyage this is this is the post graduation party in high school where i'm telling these people that i'm going to keep in touch with them but many of them i will never ever say another word to like if you're feeling all of those things and it's really bittersweet and beautiful that is that is a really difficult brass ring to grab and i just I'm, i'm not just saying this because I love Mike and Cord, but I really truly love that show, and I um, uh, and I'm so glad that it's being celebrated. Did that feel shorter to you guys
1: than it actually was?
4: Yes. Okay.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
4: A lot, but
3: can't can't muchly. Put my finger on why.
4: I feel like we like glossed over some things.
1: We definitely glossed over some things,
4: Uh,
1: one of of the predominant things being a long-form discussion about the meaning of life, moderated by our very own Ben Travers.
4: (laughs) Moderated? (laughs) Who's been angling for this for three years.
1: Yeah. Steely Danza being the long version. Also, I, I made Michael Schur defend his hot fruit hot take yet again. He had to explain it to Damon. I don't think Damon was sure of what it was. Milling the Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about our TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donhue. Our rational fears include knocking our teeth out after walking down cement stairs, waking up deaf, and getting crushed underneath an 18-wheeler. Our collective podcast fear <laughs> is that no one listens this long, or at all. You can find us on Twitter at A Million Screens, Edmund West Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Agent Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, so leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you.
2: You shouldn't
4: let poets lie to you.
5: Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast.
4: (laughs)